You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. So great to see so many people here, despite the sunny weather. Uh, my name is Ose Lapagolan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. Who owns the land and the sea? Earlier this year, this question was front and center in Norwegian media, thanks to Ella Maria Hetaisaksen and a handful of Sami and environmental youth activists who together blocked the Department of Energy to protest that the government had done nothing in 500 days since the Supreme Court ruled that a wind park in Fulston violates the human rights of Sami reindeer herders in the area. Sadly, though, this case is far from the only one threatening indigenous land and culture. South African activist Nonhle Mbutuma has fought a similar fight with her com- community in Pondoland, where they took the Australian mining company Transworld Energy and Minerals to court and won. For many indigenous activists, the environmental struggle is seen as an integrated part of the fight against extractivism, meaning to extract natural resources for export and sale, and that against colonialism. What can different activists learn from each other in this struggle? And what can all of us do to create a society where nature and indigenous rights are truly valued? Nonle Mutuma is the founder of the organization Amadiba Crisis Committee, which is fighting for land and community in Pondoland on the east coast of South Africa. And Ella Maria Heta Isaksen is an activist, a musician with her band Isak, and an actress. And to talk to the two of them on stage, we have Celia Asklundberg, former president of Friends of the Earth Norway and a senior campaigner for the organization Oil Change International. So please give them all a warm welcome. Thank you all. Thank you for being here. Um, And thank you for giving an hour of your evening to share some of your stories and also hopefully enlighten us in the work and the struggles that you are facing today. And I also thought before we start with every all of my questions that Mm -hmm. I I have so many of them. I also just wanted to recognize that English is none of our first language. It's our second and third language. So therefore, also, if there are any language issues along the way, we'll just laugh them off and continue the conversation. Um, But I thought that we could start with you, Nantle. Um, So in the past, the Pondo people have defended their lands against colonization, apartheid, and now big industrial scale mining, oil and gas development, so many different industrial projects. And uh, back in 2018, you won a decade long fight to prevent the construction of a titanium mine on your ancestral land uh, when you took the Australian mining company Transworld Energy and Minerals to court and won. And I was wondering if you could um, begin with taking us through some of the challenges that the indigenous Pondo people are facing on the coast of South Africa today. 
Um, yeah, thank you so much uh, uh, to give me this opportunity. And uh, I really, really appreciate, appreciate it. Um, yeah, uh, I'm coming from Pondoland. Pondoland uh, in South Africa is in south of Durban. Uh, Pondoland is one of the hot spots in terms of biodiversity. Uh, that is rare. Uh, you cannot find uh, the whole South Africa uh, because of uh, the beauty, because of um, the biodiversity, because of the culture, because of the history. It's a very rich area. But um, while we're living that kind of good life, um, the Australian mining, uh, just two years after democracy, early 1996, land in Pondoland. And they said they discovered titanium in our ancestral land, where we depended uh, for agriculture, for our livelihood. And uh, we just say no to this kind of development. Uh, when we say no, uh, many people, um, because these transnational corporations, when they come to the rural communities, because we're known as uh, uneducated and not to understand things, the laws and everything. They always promise jobs. But uh, as we're living there for centuries, and also we coming from the apartheid regime, where also uh, we, we've been being pushed by the colonizers, uh, when it comes to the land, the land is just here in our heart. Uh, nobody can teach us. We are the professors when it comes to the land even if we never go to any universities, but when it comes to land, we know everything about land. That is why we said no uh, to a mining. And uh, when we said no, it was not an easy task uh, because they were not expecting um, the community when they offer jobs, but communities, they said, no, we are all working here because we're working in the gardens. Why now you need to bring the mining? Because we know that mining is going to distract or destroy our gardens. And we say, no, thank you. But unfortunately, when they failed uh, to convince us, they just go to the government, to our government, and government see a good um, uplift of economy of the country, and they accept um, the offer, and they gave them the, the mining rights that they must continue to proceed uh, without talking to us, without consulting us, without our own consent. Uh, it was very challenging because um, when you are living in the rural communities, um, communities is out of any communication, any media, anything. It's not known when something is happening in the rural communities. Those were challenges that we faced when uh, we push because we're using our bodies to push the mining out after the government given uh, the permission that they must continue to, to mine. Uh, and luckily, we were very well organized in our communities, all the, because we are living in the villages. Uh, we organize all, all of us to make sure that the mining is not taking place. But uh, also, because of our area is known of um, the tourist attraction, also we've been helped uh, by some of the tourists that... Uh, visiting our area because uh, it's attracting tourists globally and they also spread the word. Uh, that's how uh, our story been known as it's been known today because of the help of the tourism that is going on in our community. Uh, yeah, we take the matter to court.
because uh, no matter how we're trying to push, uh, we're like we're pushing the frog in your house. You push it out, it comes in. You push it out, it comes in. Yeah, we decided to take the matter to court that we have a right to choose and we have a right to say no. And the right to say no is a right to say yes because it gives us a right to decide if this is good for us or it's good for somebody else. And this is what we, we, we demand in court. And also when we go to court, we manage to be helped by the pro bonos, the human rights lawyers as well, to take the matter because we are communities, we don't have money to pay the lawyers. But those human rights lawyers, they take the matter to court and help us um, to proceed with the court case. And we won in, 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 in court where the judgment was stated very clear that uh, the community of Amadiba, which is my community, uh, must give a full, free, prior informed consent before any mining activities take place, which was uh, the best judgment that was coming from uh, the South African court. And we also, you know, the ministers, uh, the Minister of Minerals and Energy was not happy at all about that decision. Uh, says that if the judgment allows, um, give this kind of judgment, it means that there will be no mining in South Africa because all communities will use the same uh, judgment. Uh, and then he promised that uh, he's going to appeal the decision, uh, but he didn't appeal. He just put a notice of appeal, no heads of argument. Until today, uh, the case is still pending. It's not even clear if it's out completely or not. Uh, we've written quite many letters to the Minister of Minerals and Energy that uh, we need to see the heads of argument as they put the notice of appeal. That is the situation uh, right now when it comes to um, the mining uh, in Kolobin. But so the appeal is from not from the mining company, but from the government? The government is the ones who are pushing for the mining company to, to come into the land? Oh, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. The appeal is not coming from the mining company. It is coming from our own government, mm -hmm. which is very strange. Uh, the government is supposed to protect us being exploited and being pushed away from our land by these mining companies. But they decided to protect uh, the mining company. And uh, also even to go to court, we're not just taking uh, the MRC, which is Mineral Resource Commodities, the Australian company. We're taking our own government because um, it's them that they gave um, the, the permission, uh, these mining companies. Now, uh, if we are not make them accountable on what they are doing, it means that they will always make an excuse to say that, no, we're not aware this mining company have done this. Now, uh, our stand was focusing on our own government. The parallel, La Maria, to Norway is also quite clear when it comes to a mining company um, coming into indigenous lands um, and 
and thinking that everything, because they just promise some jobs, then everything will be okay. Because that is kind of also the same situation in, in Finnmark uh, with the Nusir mine close to Rapparfjord. Um, and you've been quite instrumental in the fight against that mine that has also been going on for a lot of years and really like Klumen or two years ago had the big demonstrations the entire summer um, and everyone thought that the mine was going to start to build yeah. that summer including the mining company yeah. <laughs> itself and then you managed to stop it. Yeah we actually did this was in 2021 so we organized this protest camp and Uh, the mining company Nussir Asa had gotten all the permission it needed to uh, start a digging into the land, uh, making this um, fabric, fabric, factory, <laughs> factory. <laughs> Already a good start here. Um, so we decided that we were going to use civil disobedience to stop them from even getting to the land um, in the first place. And then we um, protested for 100 days, which is the longest lasting protest in Norwegian history. And uh, I was all, the, the, all along really like prepared mentally to lose, to be carried out by police officers and to be put in jail. And like like you said, after like actually using your own body to stop these machines and then fail. Um, I was really like mentally prepared for that, but then we succeeded, like literally succeeded because uh, the biggest investor of Nusirasa, the mining company, Rubis, uh, pulled out because of the social impact that they could see this mine would have and the environmental impact So that was like, um, it was like, yeah, still kind of unbelievable because oftentimes the investors of these projects that are digging into our lands and uh, stealing our lands are often far away, are often in countries that I have no platform in. And then to see that the demonstrations were heard so far away from our actual demonstrations was just, it was mind-blowing. And um, yeah, the police never came. But at the same time, it's important for me to say that it, it, it was a victory for that summer, but uh, the mining company and yeah, Nusirasa with Öysen Rushfeldt, uh, the mining director, is really eager to open this mine um, one one day so he is uh, actively looking for new investors and new ways to solve his uh, his problems yeah yeah so the threat still lingers also here yeah uh, the, the threat lingers and what's so interesting with this project is that it started for many many years ago Like long before we were even talking that much about how we need minerals in the mm, in the solving of climate change, but the rhetorics of the mining company changes with time. It's like the mission of why this mining needs to be opened changes with time. It changes according to what will bring most sympathy. 
for the case. So that has been fascinating to follow since I've been following this case since I was 16 years old. Um, I'm now 25. So so it's been it's been some time and it's it's really interesting to follow the rhetorics and it's 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 a game. Yeah. yeah. You learn to play. <laughs> and and also I think also in the case with Reparfur you also have government so even though you don't have a lawsuit here yet the yeah. Norwegian government have given all the permits and are very much cheering for the project to Yeah and and one of the many permits they need is called Byggetilatelse, uh, which is the actual permit to build this factory uh, by the fjord. Um, so for those who don't know, like this project is harmful in many ways. It's harmful for the reindeer herders in the area. Uh, this mine is, is planned in the area where calving the reindeer sexy time uh, <laughs> is, is important. And also <laughs> the plans... Uh, are to dump the mining waste into the fjord, which is like not uh, common internationally at all, but that's something we like doing in Norway. Um, so that's why uh, it has been a, it, a big case for environmental activists, but also Sami rights activists. Uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so the one permit is the Byggetilatelse, the actual factory, and um, we complained a lot of things in that permit given, a uh, permission given, that there were some flaws in the in the yeah the permission, and then we actually managed to get the county to pull the the permit permission. Per, yeah, you get what I mean. Um, so that's a kind of like um, uh, it doesn't really give me more trust <laughs> to the government than the county. Like the people who who give these permissions, because there were it was so flawed that just a random <laughs> activist group can look through it and complain, and it won't be valid anymore. Mm. So um, it, it's clear that there's like governmental uh, eagerness to open these mines and to keep industry going. Yeah. And that, because I also think, because one of the uh, other, I mean, you have many fights going on, um, um, but one of the other um, threats that you have against the Pondo people is also, as I underst- uh, understood it, that the oil companies are also uh, coming in. Shell um, is trying to gain access to drill for oil and gas off the off the coast of eastern Cape province and uh, I understood that back in 2014 they got their license, but then you had the court case, and that was also deemed illegal by the court last year. Um, but still, I understand Shell has not given given up, and also the local or the government uh, are also looking for a way to to maybe give the permission to to Shell, even though it was stopped. Um, yeah, uh, it's very true. Uh, it's battle after the battle. Uh, Pondoland is one of the areas that have been targeted to <laughs> fix the broken South Africa, if I can say. Uh, because Pondoland was one of the areas uh, during the apartheid regime, uh, it was be- been defended. It was not been disturbed. 
now the economic crisis that we are sitting in as a country, Pondoland is the place where they are targeting. That is why um, there was a titanium was being planned to open in Pondoland. And then the community we organized, we fight that. And then we won in, in, in court. And then while we just thinking everything is going to be back to normal, uh, to plow our field and look after our, 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 our cows, now Shell also come in uh, to our ocean. Uh, ocean, uh, it's part of us. Uh, many, many people, they really, especially the investors, they really don't understand uh, the connection between the human being and the ocean. Uh, that is why when Shell come to uh, Pondoland and they discovered oil and gas, uh, where is our, our livelihood, where is our ancestors are residing, uh, they did not even consider that. They just know that uh, if there is oil and gas, it means that there is capital. The rest is nothing. And then they just only use one strategy, which was being used during the apartheid regime. Again, uh, consult the monarchies, because in South Africa, uh, mostly uh, there is monarchies. Uh, in my area where I live, we are under monarchies, but they also they consult monarchies and they think it's a done deal. Uh, they just forget one thing that uh, the customer law, uh, it's been recognized by the constitution of South Africa. Uh, it means that when you do consultation, you are doing a meaningful consultation. <laughs> not just one person. When you consult a monarchy, you consult one person, you're excluding, uh, you're shutting so many people out. That's what Shell have done together with our own Minister of Minerals and Energy. Uh, they said everybody's been consulted and they were already given again uh, the permit uh, to Shell to explore, to do the seismic survey. Uh, to do the blasting. And we challenge that in court again to say, no, you can't, because we are, we are the part, we are part of the ocean. And if something is going to happen in the ocean, we need to be consulted. And they, they said, we've consulted your monarchies, and your monarchies must consulted you. It doesn't work like that. That's where we corrected our own government, because, you know, I always say that, we have the best constitution in the world. We have the best. And this constitution, it bothers the leadership of South Africa right now. They hate. They wish it doesn't exist because we, 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 we make them read their own constitution. That you can't just read outside the book. The constitution is very clear that we must consult it. And when we talk about consultation, we're talking about a meaningful consultation where we're going to give a consent as communities. And we won again that case. And this one, it was not an easy one because 
we were so worried. It's more in the deep sea because all the vessels and everything uh, from Dutch, they were already been put in the ocean. Uh, it was really difficult for us to go swim in the ocean and push them out. Um, but uh, also, again, uh, the argument of, of Shell, they said that uh, it does not make sense if South Africa can lose a lot of money just to defending ghosts. Because for them, when they talk about the ancestors, because they don't understand the cultural spiritualities that is part of the South African constitution, that we have a right to practice that. And they use that uh, as an insult that uh, we protected ghosts, uh, which is an insult in our society. And again, it was not ending there, including the Minister of Minerals and Energy uh, was being quoted on the media saying that this community of Pondoland is acting like colonialism. We are acting like colonialists. Uh, because we don't want to see a development in Pondoland. And the question, whose development that they are talking about? Mm -hmm. Right now, we are facing with the global warming, but they did not consider that. All what they consider is to get money. That is why we go to court to say that, no, we don't want uh, our oil to be taken out from the ocean. We need fish from the sea. We need water from the sea. Those are the, the, the things and our ancestors are residing there. And it's not even a question uh, if how they ended, they ended up there. That's part of our culture and it's part of the constitution. It must be respected. That's what uh, we did. But uh, also, again, when you fight with these transnational corporations, there's quite a lot of um, being pushed and threats uh, that uh, you are a stumbling block you are blocking development. Uh, I think we highly time to question what is development actually? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, and and I think that that is also a lot of what we are seeing also in, in Norway as well is that, well, we're going to have the development and, and, and one of the, during the, um, discussions or during the demonstrations um, earlier in March, almost a hundred days ago, I think. Uh, so that, um, during those demonstrations uh, that Ella Maria led, and I'm sure you were in very many debates uh, and interviews during that time. But one of the one, the many that I um, remember very well is when you met the the state secretary in the Ministry of Energy and Oil, uh, Elisabeth Satter, um, and she said that 40% of Norway is reindeer territory and we need development. Um, and we also need development in this 40% area. And then you, you banged your fist in the table uh, and you said that 100% of SAPME is colonized. Um, and I thought that was a very powerful moment, but I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that, because I think that a lot of people might not actually think about that Norway is, or that SAPME is colonized and that Norway is also a colonizer. Yes, 
a hundred percent and <laughs> and um it needs to be repeated many times that Norway is a colonizer and that Sotme is stolen land. So sometimes I say that I'm from the Norwegian side of occupied Sotme, just to remind people of of my reality and our reality. And I think sometimes I forget how many people of our majority society here in Norway are not comfortable with that fact, because that's such a part of like my worldview is seeing um, the majority society as a, a, a colonizer and and in that debate it came so natural to me but it had huge reactions like historians and and uh, yeah all kinds of people who had opinions about hmm how interesting it was that she feels that she's colonized and i was just like how is this even like debatable it's it's not at all like read the definition of of what colonization is um and we were here before the the borders were drawn and we were never asked to be a part of that process and our culture has suffered so many hundred years because of that and still is suffering because of that and when government uses arguments like that that 40% of this stolen land is ours to develop to decide over it it provokes something so deep inside me it because it's so unfair because all we had was taken and they keep taking and they keep taking and we have nothing left to give and at the same time those numbers aren't even correct it's it's a way of of creating an image of of so, me being so powerful being able to like decide over our own lands when when that is not the case we don't have rights to decide over 40% of norway that's not the case today at all 82% of those 40% are already damaged by consisting uh industry um uh like infrastructure towns all kinds of cabin building it's it's already affected so it, it like the legit, legitimate numbers would be like 4.2% but at the same time i try to not get too <laughs> mixed up in the numbers because it's like you're saying it's we have a right to our own lands and our culture has a right to exist and that's like a realization i had during the fusen demonstrations sitting there face to face with the prime minister because we actually got there during these demonstrations we were in direct negotiations with the prime minister <laughs> and sitting there face to face i think i realized you will never understand me you will never have my best interest at heart you will never care for my rights or my culture but you need to respect them either way so i lowered my expectations there and then because i don't want them to love my culture i don't want them to even like get mixed up in it just let it live
And I think that because that is, uh, I mean, also when we're speaking of court rulings and you've had several victories of that in Pondoland, but also the the court, the Supreme Court ruling in Norway when it comes to Fusen is a big win. I mean, it, it says that the, the, the wind power facility is illegal and that it is breaching the human rights of the Fusen Njarke uh, reindeer herding district. But still it's... It's so it's also kind of the same as in South Africa when it comes to but so you've had that ruling, but government does nothing, and I mean that was the background for the demonstrations that it had gone five hundred days without anything happening to the facility that has been deemed in breach of the human rights, um, but still now we're almost at six hundred days, and it's so it looks like when the industry is that when you've had a ruling in the court in Norway that is not beneficiary for the industry, it kind of doesn't matter on the same way as when, for example, the Supreme Court ruled that one of the Sami reindeer herders in um, in Finnmark had too many reindeers. Then the court ruling needed to be kind of um, respected at Immediately, once. Yeah. yeah. But when it comes to the industry, then it's fine. Yeah. Or when Samis win. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so when Samis win, then... And also when that court case started, it was uh, like in your case, uh, the government actually offered their help and support on one side of the court case. And guess what side? Which is deeply problematic because you as a government, you shouldn't pick parts in court cases in that way. Um, yeah, that's just one of the many symptoms uh, that shows how how yeah how endangered our our um, democracy is at the time here in Norway. Um, you just had a uh, there was just a meeting in the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues, and then you had some youth from. Uh, from all the different countries in that Sapne is, that gave a very powerful statement when they said that if saving the world from climate, climate devastation comes by sacrificing the indigenous world to fulfill the needs of the colonial states, then what are we even fighting for? What future do we have left? And I think that statement is kind of uh, at the heart of... Uh, of this because often we talk and speak about climate justice um, but that this is when we are seeing that you have um, kind of um, green colonialism that also the same forum also warned against um, and warned that the West's climate strategy risk the exploitation of indigenous territories resources and people. So I was wondering if maybe you could both try to speak a bit on what do you see green colonialism as and how is it happening today? (laughs) You want to start? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) A bit jet lagged still. (laughs) Um, Green colonialism is colonialism, just with new words. And... um, I think Repafjord is a, a great example of that. I was touching on it earlier, that how rhetorics changed during time. The mission is still the same, but 
the rhetorics are changing. And, and that's also interesting in the Fusen case. Oh, so interesting to hear Arbeid <laughs> Partia um, talk about climate change, but when do they talk about it? It's when they're trying to justify human rights violation towards Sami people. It's, it's, it's fascinating how, how in these debates it's like, yeah, yeah, we need to respect human rights, but we still need to solve the climate change, cri- uh, the climate crisis. And it's like, why are you telling me that? I've been telling you this. <laughs> my whole life I've been telling you this. You haven't listened, but when you're violating my rights, that's when you're telling me. And it's, that's green colonialism. Um, yeah, uh, uh, I agree. Good. Uh, <laughs> uh, green colonialism is colonialism. It doesn't matter as green or red. You know, they are busy talking about uh, let's minimize the climate change. But at the same time, they said that it doesn't mean that people must be starved. It doesn't mean that we must not having development. You know, you can see they have mixed feelings. They don't know if uh, this development that they're talking about is also uh, promoting the global warming that we are facing in today. Uh, because they say that uh, if we do development and we forcefully remove um, the rural people or the indigenous communities, uh, we do the best, uh, which is the worst ceremony uh, that they are trying to do. And uh, I always call upon that uh, we need to protect and defend the indigenous way of doing all of us, if we are not doing that. I know that uh, mostly government officials, they said that, uh, especially when they try to convince us that we are living in rural areas, that we need to be modernized. Time is modern. Uh, let's not use, let's not be an old fashion, you know, but the situation that we are in right now, it needs the old fashion in order to solve the problem. And if we keep all of us pushing uh, the indigenous communities out, uh, it means that we are pushing ourselves to the edge of the end of the world. Because these cultural, these way of doing things as we are living there, we respect the nature. But once the culture is disappeared, nobody respects the nature. The only way of respecting the nature, make sure that the cultures are there. Cultures are respected. Because each and every species that is around, you know what it means to you. But if you see the butterflies of butterfly, it's not important. Because our minister in South Africa always been quoted in media that the rural people are defending the butterflies and trees. It's good to defend the butterflies <laughs> and trees, 
Because those things, they make us to breathe today. They make us to alive today. Rather than to defend the fossil fuel. That it brings us all these floods, all this heat, you know. Yeah, thank you. And I also think that we need to, because even though there are many similarities between the fights that you fight, there are also some differences. And of course, one of them uh, being the risks that you face, Nantes, when you are um, defending the Pondo people's rights to land and to water. Um, and just now, before we started, you told me um, about uh, a beating that had happened with, with several members of, of your community also, but we also, um, I've also understood that there are several vocal opponents of the different industrial projects over time that have been killed for their opposition. Um, there are death threats and abuse, um, but still you do not uh, waver in your resistance and also in your um, work to protect the areas. And I was just wondering how you kind of, how, how do you do that? Um, yeah. Uh, when you fight for the justice of nature, because nature can't defend itself, uh, nature can defend itself, but when it defends itself, <laughs> nobody can be happy. That's what, as human beings, we need to do to make sure that we are defending the nature. Because when it responds, nobody's going to be happy. Um, to do defending the nature, uh, because many transnational corporations, <laughs> they just see as making profit. It doesn't matter who dies. It doesn't matter who suffers. As long there's profit, that's what it matters to them. That is why uh, for us that we are land defenders, activists, we receive threats. Not just threats, death threats. Because it's not just beginning for threats. The try is to offer something. Once you resist that, the next thing you receive the death threats. Because also the issue of, of Shell, even some group that are shareholders of Shell, they were calling me left and center to say, why can't we negotiate uh, the deal, to strike a deal, to get shareholding? That's not the matter. The matter is the climate justice, not shareholding. They really don't understand the language that we speak. That's the problem. We don't understand each other. Now, when they just realize that we are not taking this offering, uh, we receive some death threats, and some of our comrades are being assassinated, and the court cases are not going anywhere. 
For example, in our case, our late person was been assassinated in 2016, uh, the last assassination. But the first one, it was early 2000. But all of them, the people were being shot, killed in their own houses, not in the street. But those cases are deliberately being blocked because it's political interest that the state is invested all these uh, mega project. That is why uh, the justice, we really, really worried that the, dem the democratic South Africa that we're proud of is no longer a democratic for all. It's a democratic for few at this stage. Uh, you know, and uh, the more the pressure from capitalism, the more you see the gender division. The men, most men are more on the side of money as we speak. And uh, recently, yesterday, there was a court case where we just saw a big machine in our community also just tilling up everything. But the, all of us as women, because we're always working in the garden, we just go and push the machine. But uh, as a result of that, the men organize themselves and attack us. Uh, we've been examined in the hospital, including myself, with the women. But yesterday, the court ruling uh, interdict the activities, which is the good thing. And uh, what gives us uh, more energy? to go to your question, to fight, no matter how difficult. It's because the fight that we are fighting right now is not about us. It's about the next generation. We need to leave something for our children. Otherwise, if we don't fight now, the next generation, they won't see this world. This world is going to be ruled by few, the rest will be starving. The rest will be dying because of we didn't do, we didn't do anything. That is why we said that no matter how difficult, no matter how we've been threatened, and it's worse when you receive the threats as a woman because they know that also you have children. And uh, wherever where you take a fight, your mind is always back to your children because you know that the most valuable thing is your children. And our children right now are not even being protected because we know that they try even to kidnap our own children in order to make sure that we suffer because they, mo they know that as a woman, if your child is being taken away from you, you go mad. You lost everything. This is the, the, the thing that we are doing at this stage. That is why I said that the democracy in South Africa is no more a, a socialism. A South Africa is becoming more a right-wing state. Thank you. Thank you, and I am, uh, and I think we are all um, in awe of the 
uh, courage that you are um, showing also by continuing the fight. Um, so um, thank you for that. Um, we are beginning to run out of time, but I think we're gonna end with one um, question that I think you both um, can provide some good answers to. Um, but that is, we have several reports, both from international UN bodies, but also uh, national uh, reports as well, that says that the use of indigenous knowledge is in both nature preservation and in uh, solving the climate crisis is very important. But how do we actually make sure that the majority society, um includes the knowledge and the wisdom of indigenous peoples in the decision making? What can we do to make the decision makers understand that they need to actually include also the voices of the indigenous peoples. Ella Maria. Great. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge because the people who need to choose you and give you the microphone are maybe the people who are lacking this understanding in the first place. So um, after the Fosen demonstrations, even though I have lost a lot of faith in our own government and in our own democracy, I have gained a lot of faith um, in people, in most people. So I am hopeful that, um, that most people will listen, will care, will choose to act, and in that way force our states and our governments to act accordingly and and realizing that yeah that if we're going to solve anything and if we're going to solve the climate crisis i think indigenous knowledge needs to be at the center <laughs> of that solving because i really i know we know that it is not random that the areas of the world that are best preserved, where the where the biodiversity is is best pre preserved, is also the same areas where indigenous peoples have protected the lands, and our rights to our lands have, in many many and in many court cases, uh, been been proof that our claim to our own lands is protecting the earth. So. I think we all here can use our voice to protect indigenous rights because that is a direct way of of solving climate crisis and solving uh, these issues. So I my my hope now is is, is in people. That's yeah. a good hope to have <laughs> yeah. in people. Nonsense. Uh, 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 yeah, I have the same hope. Uh, my hope is people. Uh, that to solve the climate crisis that we are in right now, people are going to stand up and mobilize themselves. Because if we are not mobilizing ourselves, uh, our own states are driven by the capitalism. Uh, it's going to be very difficult uh, to mitigate the climate change. I agree that also... Uh, the indigenous knowledge 
must be in the center of doing the mitigation of the climate change. And I know that uh, it's quite difficult. Uh, even right now in South Africa, we have also a climate commission that it was uh, been set up by the president. Uh, you sit there, but when you speak about the indigenous knowledge, it does not ring a bell. Uh, that climate commission is just a commission of uh, we, we need to be seen as we are doing something, or, although we're doing opposite. Mm. Yeah, that is why I really, really call upon all of us uh, to support and uh, all the strugglers from the indigenous communities because um, that is the hope uh, for the future that all of us that we want to see. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you both, Olugito, and thank you all for coming. I think this is uh, all we had time for. I have many more questions, um, <laughs> but uh, they will be for another time, maybe. But thank you all for coming. And thank you also from the House of Literature to Nantlene Botuma, to Ella Marietta Isaksen, and to Silje Lundberg for educating us and, and sharing the, the bravery that you, that you show. Um, but you can hear more from Nantlene. Uh, she will be here um, tomorrow again at eight in conversation with uh, the activist and writer from Zimbabwe, Titi Tangaremba, about the situation for human rights and the dangers of being an activist in Southern Africa. Uh, and on Friday morning, she will take part in a breakfast seminar hosted by the Norwegian People's Aid entitled Just Transition or Green Colonialism. So you can hear more about these struggles then as well. So welcome back for that. And please join me in one last applause for the three of them. been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.